0: Welcome to this week's Dairy Dialogue podcast and it's number 128, which is a number with plenty of computing connotations as well as a few in astronomy as well. My nine-year-old is very much into astronomy as well as chocolate and keeps watching YouTube videos of varying quality and then asking easy questions like if a white hole exists, would it be the opposite of a black hole if there were different sizes? And it's very hard to change the subject to something that I have a clue about. I'm Jim Cornall, editor of Dairy Reporter, and the chocolate supply in the house rose astronomically over the Easter weekend, and it's rapidly diminishing. In fact, by the end of this podcast, it's quite possible two more chocolate eggs will have met their demise. It's also been a bit of a flashback to homeschooling, as it's a two-week holiday. And in the past week, we've already had the warmest day of the year so far, followed by two nights below freezing. Go figure. A bit more lockdown loosening this week here in Scotland as well, which is positive, although it's also getting a bit confusing what you can and can't do, and when you can and can't do it. As for the show, well, last week I told you who would be on this week, and they aren't. Not because I didn't do the interview, but because one of the other ones was a bit more time-sensitive and also longer, so I moved it to this week. But we're still in good shape for the next couple of weeks as well, which is always a relief. It's also been two four-day weeks, which always throws everything off, and it means that instead of yesterday being a news day, it shifted to Friday. So before we get to this week's shorter-than-usual news, I will let you know who is on the podcast this week. We have conversations with Shannon Coco, Strategic Marketing Director, Food, at Kerry North America, and Logan Shazesky, RD&A Senior Scientist at Kerry, Tim durett Director of Sustainable Technology at Veolia UK and Ireland, and Jean-Michel Lequin, Director of Danone's Wexford Ireland Formula Milk Production Facility. And of course, we also have our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton at StoneX. Okay, so let's have a quick recap of all the news we've had over the past week, bearing in mind we didn't publish yesterday, so it's a bit shorter than usual. Lactaly is launching mozzarella in a recyclable carton in the UK. Fonterra said it is reducing its reliance on coal, and it also sold two of its China farms. Horizon Organic is set on being the first carbon-positive dairy brand in the US by 2025, and in Scotland, Kerr's Family Dairy is expanding. The World Dairy Expo 2021 is set to remain in Madison, Wisconsin, and German dairy company Megla has acquired another German cheese company from Sodial. Mulek is looking to animal-free solutions in dairy, and we should have an interview with them on the podcast in the next couple of weeks. In India, Parag Milk Foods is raising funds, and Russian dairy imports have dropped by 10%. You can read these and more at dairyreporter.com. So let's get on with the show. Resource management company Veolia is set for a major increase to the amount of recycled plastic used in milk bottles and close the recycling loop for the UK dairy industry. The project will see more than 100 million new recycled bottles created each year by ensuring they are produced, distributed, consumed, collected, sorted, washed and reprocessed and made into bottles in the UK. To tell us all about it is the company's Director of Sustainable Technology, Tim Duret. I wonder if you could tell me how you do the recycling of plastic to be used in milk bottles?
1: Yeah, so sure. So what we have is Violia acquired a, you know, a facility in East London, uh, in Dagenham. And it allows us to recycle around 300 million milk bottles per year. So it's a specific polymer, natural HDPE. And the way we proceed is we collect it across the UK and in this specific facility we can achieve what we call food grade uh, recycling. So it means that at the end of the process, the plastic can go back into, into food packaging, especially uh, milk, milk bottles here. So the, the way we do is you got the trucks going in people's home, collect it, goes through different uh, facilities to sort it. We only receive the milk bottles on that facility. And what happens to it is it goes through a mechanical, chemical process to really highly purify the plastic to clean it cut it in small pieces and it's being remelted filtered several times in order to achieve a very high purity of resin of polymer that can then go back into new milk bottles
0: and do you produce the milk bottles yourself or is that at a different plant
1: yeah we, we've got different partnerships with what we call converters their industry uh, companies and they actually blow the bottles so it's a blowing process so they do that themselves on their facility And obviously, they want to ensure that, you know, the quality is is as good as possible from us to make sure they don't have issues to blow them. So it's where we've got very successful um, partnerships uh, at the moment.
0: And what are the benefits to doing the recycling in terms of the sustainability of the whole thing?
1: There are many, but the main ones are really in terms of sustainability. So when we recycle plastic, we save up to 70% carbon emission, carbon footprints against using um, virgin polymer. The number one is, you know, it's environmentally speaking, it's, it's the best choice. Not only plastic itself, you know, it saves on the carbon footprint, but if you recycle it, then you save even more. The second one is really in terms of developing infrastructures, developing employments, jobs, uh, a facility like we, we have is nearly 100 staff being employed full time, so obviously you know, it's, it's good for the economy. And I think you know, that's what we need at the moment. We're talking about the green recovery for, you know, hopefully when, when we can start to go out, develop new new recycling infrastructure. We know we're waiting for the government to release and to implement new regulations, uh, which will allow companies like Veolia to invest into new infrastructure, to you know, reduce our carbon footprints as a country and create more jobs.
0: Could you tell me what the UK Plastics Pact is?
1: Yeah, so the UK Plastics Pact has been created in 2018. It's led by a RAP, but it's to support DEFRA, to you know achieve the, the, the targets we, we have as a country. So Veolia is part of it, and there are 40, 50 leading brands representing the entire value chain of plastic. So from the UK government institutions, NGOs, recyclers like Veolia, there are three goals of the group, to achieve by 2025 that 100% of plastic packaging will be reusable, recyclable or biodegradable. The second one is that 70% will be efficiently recycled or composted and all plastic packaging produced will contain at least 30% of recycled material. So it's led by a RAP and trying to put really the industry together to achieve these three main targets.
0: Are those targets all realistic do you think?
1: They are. There's a tracker in place. So, you know, so far we are, we, we are on track. Obviously, the first milestones will be 2025, but, you know, we're on the, on the right path. But it's very, you know, it's been a real success so far in terms of putting the different stakeholders within the same working groups, including NGOs, to make sure that, you know, what, what is being delivered is, is relevant really from an environmental perspective, but also from a, an economic growth uh, aspect.
0: And what's the recycling rate? I mean, obviously not down to the individual percent, but what's the recycling rate for the plastic that's used in bottles now? And I assume that the most important thing is having a supply of recyclate that you can utilize to create new material.
1: Well, actually, I can give you the exact percentage. Okay. <laughs> uh, so 2020, as a country, we've collected 59% of all bottles you know, placed on the market. So that's a good result. Other countries do slightly better uh, with uh, you know different system in place, you know, namely the, the deposit return scheme. But as such, you know it's, it's a good result. Obviously, you can see that you know 59%. We've got quite a, a leeway to go to achieve you know 90%, which is 95% sometimes, which is what the other countries achieve. So we, we can do better uh, at collection and recycling side, and that's why we need the government to put these new regulations in place. So we you know we can mention about the plastic tax. Uh, We've got the consistency of collection, which will provide a better harmonized systems across the UK, a better labeling system to make it easier for, you know, households to understand what is recyclable or not, in which bin it should go. And then we've got the extended producer's responsibility, the EPR, which will be reformed. And again, to make sure that, you know, manufacturers, packaging manufacturers participate more to the cost of, you know, managing with the end of life of the material. So, we at 59%, we can do better and that the really the intention, but for that we need these new regulations to be implemented and with, with not being delayed at all because obviously with the current crisis we, we're having, COVID-19, you know we experienced some delays and we think you know that should not be the case because actually it's going to help to recover economically out of that, to create more jobs, to build more infrastructure as I mentioned earlier.
0: And you mentioned some countries have deposit schemes. Is that something that's useful when it comes to increasing the rate of recycling?
1: Yes. So it's proven to be quite successful. Obviously, you know, it's it's more cost. It's usually, I mean, the one is coming to Scotland and the rest of the UK, they're on 20p per bottle. So for the consumer, it's an extra cost. But it allows to capture, you know, these remaining bits to achieve, you know, 90, 95 percent collection and recycling rates across the material. Um, So, yeah, it's a very efficient system, it will come, but we are still in consultation with DEFRA, so Violia is part of the consultation, to make sure that it's shaped the right way, to make sure, you know, that the costs of implementing it is going to the right and the relevant uh, outcome.
0: You make the flakes from the old plastic and then they're used again, is there an additional cost involved with that?
1: Recycling plastics, you know, it obviously requires some infrastructure. And at the end of the day, you know, we are competing against the the virgin plastics. So when the the virgin plastic price is very low, it's difficult for us to compete because, you know, we've got our fixed cost of collecting, running the trucks, sorting the material. Uh, And that's why we need this plastic tax to help to stimulate the demand on plastics and to give priority to what is good for the environment, really, and what is good for our our economy, which is recycling more plastics, capturing more plastics, etc. So, we know, we're working hard as an industry to be uh, as efficient as possible. We need to make sure that, you know, the quality and the safety remains top priority. But we also need the support and the help from the governments to make sure that we can compete against uh, the virgin plastic.
0: And in terms of transportation, obviously, you're making 100 million recycled milk bottles. Will that be done locally to your plants?
1: So the milk bottles we are recycling, it's made in East London. So that's local. Our prime users are dairy bottlers in the UK, because, you know, it's, it's really a, a very close relationship. Uh, they produce a bottle, we recycle them, and it goes back to them. It's a very virtuous closed loop. And that's quite unique, to be fair, in the, in the, in the world, I would say. The closed loop recycling of dairy milk bottles is quite unique. And it's been used as an example across uh, the world for plastic recycling. And you know, we know we should be proud of it. Our ambition is is to do more of it as, as a private company. You know, we, we are willing to invest more into that. We see as uh, a win win, you know, between sustainable and economic growth.
0: As far as the manufacturing process is concerned, is there any changes necessary to the equipment and the machinery that's used to make the milk bottles in order to be able to use the flakes that you produce?
1: When we sell our, our product to the bottlers, you know, they incorporate about forty percent of our material into the new bottles. And we work with them to, you know, constantly increase that because ideally we want to go to 100%. Technically, it's feasible, but um, obviously it, it requires some ad- adaptation on both sides, on our side, but also on their side. So we've done some trial. We know it's, it's doable. Uh, now it's to make sure that, you know, the right context is there for both parties to invest uh, into new technology to achieve that. So that's our, our ambition. We'd love to, you know, to announce 100% recycled content uh, milk bottle, but I'm sure, you know, I'm quite optimistic that uh, in the near future we'll see this uh, happening.
0: Good. Obviously, this isn't the only thing that you do. What, what other things are you working on in terms of sustainability and recycling?
1: We are leading worldwide in terms of plastic recycling. So we do all sorts of polymers, so the PET bottles, so the transparent, you know, fizzy drinks bottles, the PP. Uh, which is you know the pots, tubes, and trays, the uh, margarita tubs. We we're developing a, a research and development project on the on the PET trays, so the meat trays you've got in the in the supermarkets. We're also working with the with a consortium and the support of UKRI Innovate UK to find a solution for for this material. Uh, I think from a global approach, we're trying to implement the solutions which are. Beneficial in terms of carbon footprints. That's really our, our main goal to lower the carbon footprint of our clients, being local authorities or you know on the private sector, retailers, etc. Because usually we we've got the technical solution, we've got the expertise in the UK or abroad, and we need to make sure that it's put to the right purpose. So some technology keeps evolving. There's lots of innovative solutions being brought. But that's kind of our USP is to make sure we provide the right technology to the right need of our, of our customers.
0: And you mentioned earlier the need for the government to get involved and, and we also talked about the potential for something like a deposit scheme. Are there any other things that would help in terms of improving sustainability and the recycling rates?
1: Yes, I think what is really key in all that, you know, we're talking about circular economy. So if you got the image of a wheel turning to achieve closed-loop solutions. Uh, what is really key is there is demand for the recycled plastic. So again, we can collect plastic, we know how to collect it, we know how to sort it, we know to how to recycle it. But then we need to find an end application for it. And what is really key uh, at the moment is to make sure that manufacturers are incentivized one way or another to incorporate more and more, ideally 100%, but we know it's not feasible and, and you know it's, it's not, uh, the infrastructure is not there to achieve that. But little by little, we've got an incremental increase of the blend rates that, uh, you know, we incentivize the manufacturers to put in the, in the packaging. If we bring all the industry little by little like that, the plastic tax starts out at 30% from April 2022. That's great. It's a very good start. But then if we can, you know, make sure this threshold is, is increasing, then this is how, you know, the, the circular uh, economy is, is really spinning around and, and accelerating. And that's where companies like us will then be uh, willing to invest more in, in collection and in, in recycling across all material, not just only plastic bottles. But that's that's uh, the case for, you know, for glass, for fiber, for cardboard, etc. That's really what we need is to stimulate the end market, the end applications, uh, and to make sure the consumer also is, is part of it. So we need to give clarity to the consumers to engage, to explain better, to make sure the participation rate increases
0: seems like it's going in the right direction though
1: it does it does obviously you know the issue we had last year you know is, is slowing down things the new regulations to come is not being slowed down by that because we think it's part of the solution plastic does help in terms of to protect our goods uh, being food or, or other things you know, we've seen it through the all the pp uh, being used during these difficult periods plastic is part of the solution we need to make sure that uh, We got the right incentives to keep developing uh, recycling because we, we still have a long way to go. But yes, there's some promising stories, but we are desperate to do more.
0: Now, the word innovation is, in my opinion, thrown around a bit too much. But one product I'm pretty sure is definitely worthy of the definition is Danone's launch of the first formula milk in the UK to be sold in a pre-measured tab format. That sadly wasn't around when I was doing 3am feedings a few years ago. The company said the new format is in response to parents' desire for greater convenience and ease when preparing formula milk feeds. To tell us about the new product is Jean-Michel Lequin, director of Denon's Wexford Ireland Formula Milk production facility. I wonder if you could first tell me what the reason was for moving to create formula in tabs as opposed to the traditional powder format.
2: Yes, so um, this is a completely breakthrough packaging indeed. And the main reason uh, for this is that out of uh, some uh, survey that we have uh, conducted in the UK uh, back in 2018, asking to more than 1,000 mums uh, about uh, infant formula and preferences, the second most important criteria that was back and quoted by the by the mums was we want to have more convenient for feeding. Again, one-third of the people in the same survey were looking for greater convenience overall when preparing a baby formula. So uh, we believe that this product is really the right response for this need from the consumer because it really replies to this more modern approach and much more convenient use for an infant formula product.
0: How does it benefit the consumer? Is it a lot easier than the uh, traditional method?
2: Yes, exactly. So it's much more uh, convenient. It's, uh, in fact, you have a pack of uh, five uh, pre-tab products that you open. It's, uh, if you are looking for more hygiene, you finally never touch the product. Uh, and then you can dose uh, one by one the, the tab, which corresponds for each one to one uh, scoop of a more traditional infant formula. So it's very handy. It's very light as well. You are not obliged to take a full box uh, with you, especially when you're on the go. Again, more hygienic and gives a lot of confidence for the consumer. So it's really a breakthrough usage of an infant formula.
0: Are there any sustainability implications? I remember back to when we had a child and the powder going everywhere dropping the little scoop so clearly there must be less waste
2: Uh, completely the waste is a key element so you're right and it has an influence overall on the even on the let's say the competitiveness one day of this product because the waste in the consumer at least side it's uh, it's far far less Uh, we use what we need uh, tab per tab which is scoop per soup for a more traditional uh, package And the other one is the the CO2. We have to look at the the overall and the global approach on our product. And uh, this product is a nice partnership with uh, two companies, so Meiji Group in Japan and uh, Danone. And finally, we are going to produce this technology from Japan, but in Europe for the European consumer. So if we are looking finally uh, on the farm to fork uh, CO2 measurement of the entire footprint of the product, at the end, it's it's a good story for the consumer as well.
0: Is it something that would apply to other products as well, or is it mainly the formula?
2: No. Today, this uh, partnership is only for European market and for in formula. So finally, Danone is bringing uh, the knowledge of the recipes, bringing the knowledge of the consumer and our network in Europe. And Meiji is bringing in this partnership, in this manufacturing partnership, the patented technology and how to make this uh, pre-tab, uh, pre-measure tabs uh, in, the, in the factory.
0: And for you to make, is it easier and cheaper to produce it in tab format or is it more expensive?
2: We can say that because we create so much value for the consumer, It's a more sophisticated process, clearly, where we use uh, compression and we use as well uh, humidification through an oven to create this uh, crumble free let's say, uh, product, very, very specific, uh, very modern. And of course, for that, we, we need more technology. So overall, and, it, and it's a breakthrough, it's a new approach, it's a new technology, new line. So it's a more effort at the start, for sure.
0: Because of the production techniques, is there more packaging and And is that packaging recyclable? Is it a better product in terms of the packaging than previously?
2: For packaging, uh, let's let's be clear. When you create so more value for the consumer and it's so handy to use. The packaging quantity per dose, let's say, will be slightly higher than a conventional product. But at the end, we bring as well much more ease of use, we bring less waste. Uh, so that's another approach that we need to add on that. And clearly, today, the cartonized box in which we are producing this, uh, this product is completely recyclable. And at the moment, the sachet itself is not, but of course, we are looking to a type of uh, sachet. Uh, which tomorrow will be 100% recyclable. So the aim is to have really a nice and 100% recyclable pack.
0: You produced the formula at the Wexford plant in Ireland, and you're producing the tabs at the same plant. Was there a lot of work to be able to switch from formula to tabs, or are you still creating formula as well?
2: No, in fact, we use uh, our, what we call base border from our network, so our internal network in Danone, specifically today out of the other uh, nice factory we have in Ireland, so in Macroom, and we use this base border in the different recipes uh, that we know in our portfolio to make the tablets in the Wexford factory, which is then uh, taking care of the packaging uh, part.
0: And the relationship with Meiji in, from Japan, how did that develop? Did you know that they made uh, this product?
2: Yes, yeah, so it's a nice and fantastic uh, story and partnership that I've uh, started uh, now a few years ago and after three years of, uh, let's say, cooperation and studying this approach and how to make it uh, real on the European market, uh, finally, the Wexford factory was selected. Uh, Meiji was continuing to develop uh, its own technology and we have finally invested with a, so a co-investment in a production line here in the Wexford facility to produce first for the UK market and the Boots Retailer in order to test uh, the product with the consumer and to get as much feedback as we can.
0: Do you anticipate that you'll be doing other projects with Meiji or is it too early to say?
2: It's a bit early. We have to make the most of this one, which is again scope uh, infant formula in tablets for the Euro- European market.
0: I assume that this has been tested with parents. So what's the reaction been like to it so far?
2: The first reaction, of course, and uh, it was out of uh, first test that we were conducted already many months ago, is that uh, it's a breakthrough, it's very new, uh, it can be uh, a nice uh, usage for on-the-go uh, travel or usage for babies when you, you want to, for example, as well to make uh, not a regular feeding, but it can be an exceptional feeding, for example. Uh, again, or for weekend, or for dif- different type, uh, different type of use. When again, convenience uh, will be the leading factor. Uh, so the first reaction of the parent is very positive.
0: I would imagine that once we start traveling again, it will be something that will be very well used when it comes to travel. If we, if we ever get to travel again.
2: Yes, completely. In the new normal, uh, we are expecting this. Uh, this will get even more, uh, more parents interested into this uh, new technology.
0: I think people use the word innovative too often, but this definitely is. Is it something that you'll be rolling out to your other products in the UK and also in the rest of Europe and beyond eventually?
2: Yes, indeed. So the the first step, it's uh, this boost test out of the the UK market in order to learn from the consumer, maybe to optimize as well, of course, the the product. And then the plan after a few months or up to one year of uh, study in this market, the plan is to make a rollout when it makes sense in the European market in our brands, but again, only in Europe, yes.
0: I would imagine five years from now that this will be something that people could never imagine anything different, especially new parents probably thinking, well, hasn't it always
2: been this way? It's
0: definitely a great story.
2: Uh, it's a nice story as well for the Wexford factory, uh, because we uh, we welcome this new technology. We I think as a, as a site, as a Danone Wexford site, we demonstrate again in this factory where we are claiming now for one year that we are the first infant formula to be carbon neutral, making baby food. Now we launch uh, out of this site uh, this new breakthrough innovations uh, with a lot of cooperation with a Japanese company, yeah, which is a nice uh, business and uh, manufacturing story with a fantastic new technology. So we learn out of this line we have trained our people and now it's on the market so we as a week site we are very proud of it you know a few
0: years from now parents will be saying ah back in my day we had to measure formula out with a little plastic cup parents today have it so easy Yesterday, today and tomorrow, the International Dairy Foods Association is hosting a virtual ice cream technology conference. And among the presenters is Kerry, who will be talking about trends in the North American ice cream industry. And as well as telling attendees, they're going to give us a few insights as well. We chatted with Shannon Coco, Strategic Marketing Director, Food, and Logan Shazesky, RD&A Senior Scientist at Kerry. So I wonder to start if you could tell me a little bit about the IDFA Ice Cream Technology Conference and what your involvement is in that.
3: Sure, yeah, so, so I can go ahead and, and just start this off. Uh, Jim is I've had the the luck of being able to attend IDFA for the past four years. Unfortunately, obviously, uh, last year's conference in Miami was canceled. Uh, much to my chagrin, I think everybody in the Midwest looks forward to a chance to go down um, to the conference It's normally held in Florida in the beginning of April. So like uh, it's still usually pretty chilly here. So it's kind of a nice getaway. But yeah, essentially, it's you know, it's an industry event hosted by the IDFA or the International Dairy Foods Association. And it's more of a one of a kind event where, you know, professionals in the ice cream and frozen dessert community, both industry and academic, can all come together, you know, over the course of two days to learn about frozen dessert and ice cream innovation. We can catch up on some of the latest academic research, which kind of fits directly into what we're going to be focusing on, you know, some of the latest trends, you know, in that market space. So on Wednesday we'll be presenting a 45 minute segment on consumer and market flavor trends, uh, and that's at 2:45 to 3:30 p.m. Central Standard Time.
0: When you said that it was in Florida and that it was cancelled, uh, it reminded me of an, an event that about 20 years ago. And not that I'm bitter about it, but there was a conference that I was supposed to go to, and it was in New Zealand, and it was cancelled, and they moved it to the town that I was living in.
4: Oh. So, <laughs> which, which,
0: so I, I I feel your pain.
3: Yep. So this will be you know completely virtual event this year, and hopefully we'll return to to some semblance of of normalcy next year. And I'm sure we'll we'll probably look to to meet back in person. So it'll be interesting to do everything from a virtual perspective. I think. You know, after a year into the pandemic, all of us have become very acclimated to meeting virtually and doing presentations and maybe hosting meetings virtually. So it's kind of just par for the course at this point. But I think all of us are are probably ready to get some face time with one another.
0: <laughs> I guess you're the taste and flavor people when it comes to new products. What trends are you seeing in the North American ice cream market right now?
5: I think there's been some really interesting things that COVID has progressed quickly with in terms of the ice cream space. So kind of with that pause, what's been really interesting to see is that consumers have started to reflect and think nostalgically about their comfort foods and the things that bring them joy. So what we've started to see, both in ice cream and in other categories, is this pull for really loaded indulgence, but that's based on comfort and nostalgia. So I know at the conference itself, and Jim, we're happy to share the teaser with you as appropriate, Logan and Chef Leslie on our team have created some 90s inspiration, really thinking about some of those up-and-coming dessert flavors that we're seeing from our taste charts. So things like cotton candy and childhood candy favorites. And then, of course, dessert flavors like banana split and birthday cake that are also making moves in that dessert ice cream inspiration space. I think the other things we're seeing are that given that travel is very limited for consumers and is, is unlikely to really recover until at least 2023, there's a real opportunity in the ice cream and frozen desserts, which are grounded in treat and moments of joy to help consumers travel with their taste buds and bring some of those emerging global inspirations into the dessert space. So some of the flavors that we're seeing come to the fore are things like matcha and chai, even named chili peppers, like hatch green chilies, um, and even some cheeses. I've tried um, a halloumi ice cream and a Parmesan cheese ice cream. I've, I've started to see come through how people are bringing that sweet and salty to the fore as well and tying that in. I think the other thing I would just call out in terms of trends, thinking beyond the flavor element, is what the last year has helped to create space for is really that exponential growth of functional ice creams and what that looks like. So especially among younger consumers, so think ages 25, 34-ish, somewhere in that bracket – Our research has found that functional benefits is something that's really encouraging them to try new frozen treats, and they are seeking that out. So areas like mood management is starting to come through in both the flavors and claims that we're seeing. So think lavender, hibiscus, probiotics and immunity, very much still in the infancy, but areas that we're starting to see come through in ice cream that we're seeing really strong and influencing categories like beverage. So that's helped to really establish, I would say, The need for gut health, immune health, and that's come to the fore as one of the top claims that consumers said they're looking for now, but are prioritizing to look for in the next year to two years as well. So that's really, I think, been a driver for where we're seeing the category start to shift and tie into some other table stakes or or what I suppose established trends around sustainability and plant based um, and how that's really showing the evolution of those trends as well.
0: You mentioned the nostalgic flavors quite often those nostalgic flavors weren't necessarily the most healthy. Um, mm-hmm. how, how do you kind of reconcile the fact that a lot of things that we ate when we were kids weren't as healthy <laughs> as they are now with trying to recreate them at this point in time?
5: That's a great question. And I think it's a balance and we're seeing it start to come through the market in a few ways. So some is just really going full into indulgence and you know there's a fruity pebbles ice cream out there you know there's peeps inspiration even pepsi came out with a peep soda for easter so i think in some ways people are leaning into that and recognizing you know ice cream is about indulgence truly however to your point i think there is definitely still space that's been created for offerings with reduced sugar and that is still i would say a gap that as these become more indulgent it's probably a technical challenge, I look to you, Logan, and how we don't lose that taste experience, but address that. So I think it is a gap, and especially as we think about parents and children's occasions, is, is something that we're seeing being addressed, I would say more through plant-based products than mainstream dairy products, from what I'm seeing. But Logan, would you agree or are you seeing something different?
3: Shannon hit it on the head, you know, ice cream and frozen desserts specifically, they are, you know, they're inherently indulgent products by nature, traditionally in added sugar and saturated fat. But I think if you look at where we're at as an industry, you know, we certainly have the technology and the capabilities at this point to make them more nutritionally beneficial or at least to, you know, make them more permissible. So, you know, whether it's from a formulation perspective, you know, you could do, you know, fortification via the addition of, you know, macro or micronutrients like the incorporation maybe of maybe a plant base such as an oat or the fortification of a protein or, you know, maybe some of these health halo vitamins and minerals, or maybe it's the addition of a functional ingredient like a live and active culture incorporating those type of ingredients or making those modifications into frozen desserts or ice cream, it doesn't necessarily pose maybe any more of a technical challenge, I would say than other foodstuffs. I think it's just with that connotation of being an indulgent, delicious product to Shannon's point, you know, we want to make sure that we're not sacrificing taste, because I think that's why people turn to ice cream and frozen desserts, because they know that they should be expecting some sort of indulgent product. But I think, you know, we're certainly at the point where we can start to Maybe make these products a little bit more beneficial. And I think, you know, if you look at another big trend that we've seen, it's like that advent of sort of snackability mm. and the, mm-hmm. the, the delivery format in this space. So it's we're seeing a lot more bars, we're seeing a lot more bites, there's more aerated products. All of that offers like a little bit more of portion control. And so I think given ice cream's popularity, I think you could probably argue that ice cream might actually be kind of a good medium to potentially provide some of these benefits uh, just because of its wide range popularity and acceptability.
5: No, that's a great point, Logan, around the snackability. We saw that in confectionery. I think Europe in particular, as they were looking at confections and how do they address the sugar question. That was one route that, that definitely has provided a way for them to really just help consumers make more managed, portionable choices without sacrificing that taste experience.
0: The other thing that I was thinking of when you were mentioning the international Mm. uh, aspect of this in terms of coming up with new flavors in terms of travel, because people can't, um, the pandemic has also affected a lot of people economically. How do you communicate with consumers any new flavors that they're not familiar with? Because I think the temptation might Mm -hmm. be if I saw something in a store or in the supermarket that I didn't recognize, I'm not sure I would give it a go just on the basis of the fact that it's unfamiliar.
5: Yeah, it's a great point. And I'd say it's kind of a tale of a yin and yang from what I see with consumers. So there are those consumers who are saying they're open to trying new flavors. So some of the latest research we've been looking at actually said that number's increased because of that limited ability to travel. So four in five consumers say they're open to trying new foods and flavors. However, to your point, Jim, there's a balance there. And I think being able to use the description or pairing that with familiarity is one way in which we're really seeing brands and offerings able to bridge that gap. One example we came across was a Swedish cookie dough ice cream. So it's taken cookie dough, which is personally one of my favorite elements of eating ice cream. I love cookie dough and ice cream and that texture and complexity, and then pairing it with a Swedish um, inspired cookie dough profile. So think more of the snickerdoodle types, but they're making that accessible through a familiarity and Americanization of some of those elements. So I think there's probably a spectrum depending on where a brand and product's positioning is, as well as how it's shared with the consumer. And I think there's a lot of cues from food service that we see in other categories that also do that. So think quesadilla pizzas, right, where we're seeing that fusion food come together in a way that makes it accessible. So you take pizza, people love pizza, and that's a way we've seen things like gochujang and Thai profiles come into familiarity in that category. I think we're starting to see that come through as we think about mainstream categories like ice cream. Everyone loves it. And how do you bring those profiles into familiar elements of that ice cream, like cookie dough?
0: Are you seeing that these trends are replicated in different regions or are they very region specific?
5: Mm. That's a great question. I would say what I'm mostly seeing when I look at other regions, and probably Europe is where I'm most familiar, to be honest, a lot of how I'm seeing the offerings position there are around more the benefits which i think comes back to that evolution of functionality we're seeing. So the top 3 claims that Europe as an example has seen grow over the last 2 years is dairy-free, reduced sugar, and organic. And for that continent, the consumers recognize there's a gap in those elements of the products, so only about 3% of offerings in Europe are considered better for you from what we've looked at with our European colleagues at Kerry those products are also demanding a higher price point. So I think the market over the last two years has started to recognize that gap for them in particular and start to address it. And I think, honestly, when we think about functionality and from a North American perspective, from what I'm seeing, it's not drastically different in terms of that poll. The drivers in terms of why consumers may be consuming it definitely have some similarities and differences. So it might be sugar, but it's also more about Proactive health and well being, more so as well as sustainability. So, I'd say there's a combination of, of factors there. On the flavor side, I'm not seeing anything wildly different from a trends perspective. But, Logan, how about you? Is there anything you would call out specifically?
3: No, not really. My experience is primarily more focused domestically here in North America. But I would say to Shannon's point, just to push that familiarity with something that's maybe a little bit more Mm. unique and exotic. That's definitely something that we've seen, to your point, Jim, trying to do something that kind of sets maybe your brand or your product apart from others in the marketplace while still being accessible and being familiar. You know, I think that's what we've seen. I've seen a lot of companies come in or a lot of customers come in. And they're looking to build a brand identity by creating flavor profiles that are unique specifically to themselves.
0: You mentioned a little earlier the, the pandemic. I guess people are starting to look at products with health benefits. Is ice cream a good medium for mm-hmm. that to actually work? Because we've seen in the last few months, cheese with probiotics and mm-hmm. cheese with vitamins. And does ice cream lend itself to that kind of claim?
5: Absolutely, from what I'm seeing. And I think what we're seeing, Jim, is actually the items that are leaning into that space are really gaining shelf space and gaining consumer attention. So probably the most prominent example of that that has established itself is the plant-based space. And so we wanted to better understand that just as one example as Carrie to understand, okay, well, what's driving consumers? Are they choosing this over ice cream? Are they choosing this in addition to ice cream? What's driving them into this category? And what we found is that there's really four types of occasions that drive consumers in plant-based and they're very closely aligned to what I think we're overall seeing and the opportunity for functionality in ice cream. So the first consumers are all about adventurous eaters they're looking for what's new, what's interesting foods that can also help them achieve their health goals. So if you look at the ice cream freezer, you know, we've started to see plant-based and that's next to the keto ice creams, right? And it's next to some of the more lifestyle-driven products. When I go to my local retailers, that's what I'm typically seeing in terms of how they're also presenting that to consumers. The second is those consumers looking for digestive health, really, and are looking at, How can I enjoy my ice cream? Kind of have your cake and eat it too. How can I enjoy my ice cream, but I just need to feel good about how I'll feel after eating that ice cream? And I think we're seeing that come through in some of those drivers around plant-based. The third group is, I want it all. And I think this is really an interesting space as we think about functionality. These are the consumers who say, I'm looking to get more out of the foods that I'm eating and have claimed ice cream as one of those ways and and spaces they want to see that come through. And then the fourth is specialty dieters, right? So there is about a quarter of the market where consumers are saying either my kids or my household or I have certain things that I'm trying to incorporate into the types of foods and beverages that I choose. And I want ice cream to be part of that. So think about from trendy diet evolutions like whole 30, paleo, keto, to, you know, I have someone in my household who is vegan and has made that choice. There's a number of reasons, obviously, whether environmental, animal, health, et cetera. So I think there's those four are overarching drivers is what we're really seeing when it comes to functionality opportunities in ice cream. And the probably most clear view of how we're seeing that come to the fore is through plant-based. So adventurous eaters people who want to feel good through digestive health, people who want it all, so not the ones who will not compromise, and then those specialty experiences. And they're pretty evenly split from what we found as well, which I think is particularly interesting since I would have gone into looking at that with some assumptions that maybe were a little bit different.
0: You mentioned plant-based is clearly, Mm -hmm. clearly huge. Does that offer a lot of challenges in terms of formulation? Because if you have Mm. a plant-based version of exactly the same product, I assume that you can't just um, do it in exactly the same way because the medium itself can be so hugely varied because it can be oat or Mm. almond or coconut. Yeah. I would
3: say, on with my background, Jim. You know, on the dairy application side, we also do a, a ton of work on the non-dairy side, and so. I'd say what we see from a plant-based frozen dessert perspective is a, a ton of challenges around taste and texture and, and performance. So we're, we're seeing, you know, challenges with trying to just make that new base material, like you said, whether it's oat or some sort of nut base. We're trying to make that more approachable to a customer and whether that's by flavor profiles that cater specifically to that base or trying to eliminate or mask the flavor of that base and make it more neutral entirely. I think another one is dairy ice cream has got a very unique and indulgent texture and mouthfeel and bite. And one of the challenges, especially when you can't implement or utilize butter fat, is that you have to figure out how to essentially determine a, a mimetic for that, and whether that's you know some sort of vegetable-based oil or combination of oils uh, along with some stabilizers and, and emulsifiers those are areas which i think are especially challenging and a lot of our customers when they come to us for solutions that's an area where they they struggle in so those are probably the biggest challenges i'd say with
0: plant based is there still growth potential in plant based it's
5: definitely established but there's still great opportunity for it to grow alongside dairy so consumers are still eating dairy most of them who eat plant based ice cream are also eating dairy based ice cream or buying it for their household but there is definitely potential for growth. The category is still quite small, overarchingly. It's less than a billion dollars in retail at this stage. But what we're seeing, and even over the last few months, is that it's grown 10 to 20%, depending on the category or subcategory of ice cream. So we do see an opportunity there. And what I think is really interesting as we think about food service then, and you know, on a similar trajectory to what we've seen plant-based protein take, That exploded over the last two years in food service. So plant-based protein, the the growth status, it's over 8,000%. So basically from zero to most of your mainstream QSRs and fast casual restaurants. And what we're starting to see is that from a plant-based dairy perspective, predominantly milk and ice cream based, that is also the case. I would argue the other categories are a little bit further behind in the food service world. But in the last year alone, we've seen you know, the Ben & Jerry's Scoop Shops, Dairy Queen, Baskin Robbins, and Yogurtland among the food service players that are known for their, their frozen desserts lean into that space and embrace that. So I think with that reach expanding into other channels beyond retail, such as food service, that's only expediting the consumer awareness of the category and interest in embracing it. Or pairing it, because I don't know if you're aware, Jim, but Logan is actually the longest reigning IDFA innovation champion with one of his hybrid ice cream concepts that he created for the 2019 conference. So it actually paired dairy and plant based. So there's also kind of a, a bridging of those worlds that I think is we're starting to see happen, but there's much more room for growth there, too
0: you're talking about trends, but you can certainly help companies with this. What range of assistance can you give? Mm. Obviously, you, you create flavors, but I assume that you're also able to help with ideas and marketing or how much of that trip from idea to product on the shelf can you help with?
5: Yeah, that's a great question. So from a carry perspective, especially when it comes to the dairy team, I have a soft spot for. We're really focused on partnering with our customers end to end. So from understanding, you know, what's happening and influencing their category and opportunities in the market, to helping them solve some of those challenges Logan mentioned around how do you deliver those characterizing flavors to how do you modulate and and create a neutral base to work with if you are working in categories where you're masking functional ingredients or plant-based challenges to creating bases that provide a creamy and rich texture. We really are partnering with many of our customers from that ideation through to creating prototypes with them hand in hand through our applications expertise. And then in a lot of cases, and Logan, you can probably speak to this more eloquently, helping them through processing and manufacturing if these are new areas for them as they evolve in terms of either functionality or bringing new items and elevating their offerings into the marketplace. There are a number of tools I should say on our carry website that I'd be happy to point people towards that I think can be great thought starters for that. Uh, we have a white paper around reinventing indulgence in plant-based ice cream. And then on our website, we also have a solutions finder. So if there are specific challenges in the plant-based space in particular that people are encountering, this is a great way to start looking at, okay, what types of challenges can we help identify and where might be a good starting point for Kerry to support our customers in that journey?
3: I think if we look at Carrie's technology portfolio from a technical perspective, we really focus on I guess these like four core pillars. You've got taste, we've got nutrition, performance, and then sustainability. And all of the technology that we offer, I think we're touted and most often known as a flavor company. But I think really what we do is we offer you know solutions in each one of these areas. And ice cream is actually one of those specific applications where I think we offer a really holistic approach to everything. So if you, know, you look at taste, of course we can offer flavors, we can offer modulators and ways to potentially mask things if necessary. But we also make sweet sauces and flavor bases for ice cream. And we also make confections, so doughs and chunks and baked items. If you look at it from a nutrition perspective, if you wanted to go for more of a proactive health ingredient, we offer our BC30 probiotic. We've got our Wellmune, which is kind of a clinically proven beta-glucan ingredient, which can enhance immune response. We've got performance products, which is anywhere from a series of proteins, both dairy-based and plant-based, as well as our texturant blends, so specialized blends for specific applications, you know, even outside of ice cream and plant-based frozen dessert, but all of them specifically catered to those applications. And then, especially as of late, kind of moving with the trends that we've seen, we've really put an emphasis to double down on plant-based and sustainability. So a really big focus for us as of late is to really work closely with those customers that that are trying to get into the plant-based space. And a lot of the times it's been customers that are traditionally known for being in the dairy space. And so we're there as a resource for okay. them to better understand how they can easily make that transition and to do it well.
0: So we've talked to Danone about their Wexford plant in Ireland. And Kerry is, of course, headquartered in Ireland, so let's make it three in a row as we head over to Dublin for our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton at Stone X.
4: It has been a relatively quiet week for trading uh, given the uh, Easter holidays, but prices have continued to, well and butter, remain relatively stable to slightly stronger and skim powder a little bit stronger, which has been in line really with the GDT of this week also quarter two butter was up around 40 euros on the week to the 41.75 level quarter three butter up around 10 or 15 euros to the 42.15 level quarter four butter then was up around 15 euros on the week as well uh, up around to 42.40 level Uh, skimmel powder then we had quarter two skimmel powder was up around 50 euros on the week to 25.20 Quarter three was up around 30 euros on the week to 35-40 level, and then quarter four was up around 25 euros on the week to 25-50 level. Quarter one of next year uh, skimmed powder was also a bit stronger, maybe up around 50 euros on the week to around 25-75 level, 25-80 level. Weight remained relatively constant around 1,000 euros a ton level.
0: Thanks, Liam. We'll talk to you again next week. Stone X, formerly INTLFC Stone, provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that does it for another show. As for next week, well, here's the plan, just don't hold me to it. We will definitely have the interview with the University of Surrey about processed foods, an amazing gelato company in the US called Bon Appetit, Suite, and R.A. Jones about an automatic magazine loader for cartoning machines. And that's not the kind of magazines like Baseball Digest or Vogue. Speaking of magazines, I subscribed to a magazine reading app this week, which means instead of not having time to read one magazine a week, now I won't have time to read 5,000 magazines. It would really be a useful app to have for reading on planes, but I haven't been on a plane in 14 months. Not that I'm counting or I'm missing travelling or anything. I'm sure many of you are missing travelling too. So, wherever in the world you may be, I hope you have a great week. Take care, stay safe, and, as always, thanks for listening.